On behalf of myself, Cantor Frankel, uh, Rabbi Bernstein, and our beloved Rabbi Emeritus who's joining us here this evening, Rabbi Stephen Carubin, um, as well as the entire KI community, I'm honored to introduce Rabbi Dr. David Teutsch to all of you this evening. Um, Rabbi Teutsch is the director of the Center for Jewish Ethics and the Lewis and Myra Weiner Professor of Contemporary Jewish Civilization at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, where he previously served as president. He is the editor-in-chief of the groundbreaking seven-volume Kol HaNeshama Reconstructionist prayer book series, the very one you're holding in your hands. Rabbi Toich is also the author of Spiritual Community, The Power to Restore Hope, Commitment, and Joy, as well as dozens of other books and articles of special interest to Reconstructionists throughout the world. Uh, he published four essential Reconstructionist guides to Jewish practice as well, a more uh, his recent project. Uh, in addition to all of that, he is one of my teachers and mentors, um, and I'm hard-pressed to think of a more incredible and incisive Jewish speaker and thinker in the world today. I'm honored to have Dr. Rabbi David Teutsch with us this evening. Thank you for joining us. Shabbat Shalom. It's a pleasure to be back in this congregation. Um, Some of you are old friends who I met even in rabbinical school. Um, Others of you I met at the first Reconstructionist convention after I joined uh, the staff of the movement in 1980. And still others are folks that I've met on my trips to Los Angeles over the years. So um, I also met some wonderful new people tonight. So it's a delight to be back with you and uh, especially to uh, watch your rabbis and cantor in action. They are a wonderful group, and I hope you realize how lucky you are. That is not what I usually say when I'm speaking to congregations. Uh, We all know that if you turn to the opening chapters of the book of uh, Genesis, Breshit, um, there are words there that sort of automatically come to us. And God said, let there be light and... And we know that that same thing of God speaking and then the world being created repeats and repeats in that opening section of Genesis. It is literally the case that according to the Bible, words created the world. The introduction written by the rabbis to the section of uh, the morning service called Psuket Zimra, that's a collection of psalms, begins with the words, uh, Baruch She'amar V'haya Ha'olam. Blessed is the one who spoke and the world came into being. One of the things that even folks who don't know much about Judaism know is we take a great deal of pride and seriousness in the words of our tradition and in adding and speaking those words. But more than that, uh, underlying that is the idea that words actually shape our individual worlds. 
Think of the power of the words that were spoken to you by your parents, by your friends. How devastating it was when one of the kids said something cruel to you. I said that in a group recently of adults, and one of the adults says, it doesn't stop then. I'm still smarting from what my boss said to me this morning. We never outgrow the power of words to shape our lives, shape our sense of self, shape our sense of our own dignity. And indeed, every major decision we make in our lives uh, is shaped by the words we use to think about what we ought to do. Words shape our lives, our thoughts, our relationships. Think how bereft a person is who has never experienced someone saying to him or her, I love you. How those words fill us with meaning. So if speech is that critical to our lives and to our understanding of who we are, It should not be surprising to us that Jewish tradition considers speech ethics absolutely essential to living the good life. Without a sense of what we ought to do with our words, we live lives in which the most dangerous weapons in our possession are used with abandon. According to the Talmud, God's seal has on it only one word, and that word is emet, truth. And if we think about what we would like to represent as the divine in our own minds, um, the power of truth is certainly a huge portion of what we connect with divinity. By contrast, I uh, read in the New York Times uh, last week a lengthy scorecard of all the major presidential candidates, and what the scorecard had on it was who had told more untruths during this campaign. (laughs) And uh, this was not partisan. Almost nobody looked good when their words were investigated with um, any care at all. Whether that meant falsifying aspects of their biographies or misstating their actions in their political lives or talking about their policies as unwavering when, when one speech was compared to another, it was clear that they had um, swerved a great deal. This isn't something we should take for granted. Uh, It's an American tragedy that we need to keep score on who among our politicians is telling more lies. And it's an even greater tragedy when a paper like the New York Times spends more time talking about who does a better job of getting away with it 
rather than excoriating the phenomenon. So speech ethics are critical to our lives, and we all suffer in a variety of ways when we're surrounded by people who don't live up to them. One of the key ideas uh, about Jewish ethics that we've inherited is the idea um, that Lashon Hara, evil or bad speech, um, is a thing that can ruin our society. In the meditation that immediately follows uh, the Amidah, we had it in the service tonight, the opening words of that meditation are, Elohai Nitzor Lashoni Meira. My God, my God, guard my lips from speaking badly. And by speaking badly, they don't mean having a speech defect. And they don't mean being imprecise in the use of language. They mean saying words that corrupt our world in one way or another. But the phrase Lushan Hara, to give it the Yiddish pronunciation, uh, is used fairly broadly by all sorts of folks. And what they don't realize is that actually um, it's subdivided in our, in our tradition into several categories. Uh, one of them is Motsi Shemra, um, literally bringing out a bad name. What it means is saying something about somebody that isn't true. I imagine almost all of you at one point in your lives played that game called telephone where you made a circle and somebody whispered into the first person's ear and that person was supposed to repeat it. You went around the circle and by the time it got back to the beginning it bore no resemblance whatsoever to what had been said originally. Um, which is why gossip is not just Lashon Hara, it's not just um, bad speech, it's really Motsi Shemra, because by the time it goes through two or three people, it contains lies. Those lies may not be purposeful lies, they may not be intentional lies, but it's the passing on of untruths. I, uh, there's a show I like to watch at 8 o'clock in the evening, and so I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I turned on the TV the other night at 7.50, just in time to catch one of the gossip shows. And they were very careful to cite sources. Someone close to her said that her marriage is shaky because she... And it was a brilliant example of publicly permitted Motsi Shemra. So it's a way in which our society has licensed Lashon Hara and Motsi Shemra to the point where we take it for granted because we are bombarded with it constantly. In print magazines, on TV, even more so on the web. So Jewish tradition in saying you ought to guard your words, you ought not to engage in Motsi Shemra, is really making a powerful countercultural statement. The third category that our tradition talks about in that regard is Rechilut. 
Rechilut is speech that um, creates tension between people. Mark, do you know what Susan said about you at the meeting yesterday? Um, that creates friction, that um, is libelous and damaging. And uh, Rechilut is considered to be uh, a really serious and dangerous offense uh, in, in Jewish tradition. Rechilut is almost taken for granted in our society unless it, unless it rises to the level of actionable libel, we take for granted that behavior. And even in congregations, and I spend a lot of time in congregations all over the country, I've noted that in a lot of our congregations, people aren't trained not to do Lashon Hara, Motzi Shemara, or Rechilut, even during meetings. And our lives are corrupted as a result. What is corruption? One way to understand spoken corruption is that it eats away at the trust in relationships and it eats away at the trust in community. You know, there's nothing, I think, more precious between people than the trust, the respect, and the caring they share. And evil speech eats through that trust and that caring at an astonishing rate. And so we're asked not to do it. But are we asked never to do it in Jewish tradition? No, our tradition is never that um, absolute about anything. So there's another category called azhara, warning. If you give a reference on somebody, they're applying for another job, you're required to warn the a potential employer if that person could do something to harm them. Uh, and yet, because we live in a, in a society where everyone is scared of getting sued, more and more uh, companies refuse to give references that all they do will give is give the date in which someone was hired and the date in which they left with no additional commentary. But Azhara warning and protecting each other is is part of a basic structure of mutuality that strengthens community and strengthens caring and strengthens trust. One more category I want to mention because it's a wonderful example on the other side and that's Hakarat Hatov. Um, before Christians were using the phrase what it, this was understood to mean is spreading the good news, but not spreading that good news. <laughs> spreading good news means when you see someone else who's accomplished something, you make sure to tell people about it. You make sure to express your gratitude to them and your appreciation. When you see things going well, you make a point of sharing that information. This morning I was reading the RRA net, which is the uh, way in which Reconstructionist rabbis stay, stay in touch with each other. And uh, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association has a new executive director. And I was really thrilled to see five or six comments in a row saying what a wonderful job she was doing. 
It's one thing to say to the person that you're feeling good about, you did a great job. It's another thing, and a much more important thing, to say it not only to that person, but to the rest of the people around. Because one of the things that binds us together as a community is a sense that we're accomplishing good things, and those things really matter. All of this, from my perspective, is an illustration of the fact that Jewish ethics brings a particular approach to a broad variety of issues, and the substance of Jewish ethics is uh, remarkably closed to most contemporary Jews, not because they've ever said, oh, I don't want to learn that, but because they haven't really had much opportunity to learn it. So before tonight, how many of you had ever heard the phrase Hakarata Tov? Raise your hands. Two, three, um, and that's nobody's fault. But what it gets at is if we take seriously that Judaism is a way of life that really can affect who we are and how we think and how we make decisions, then the vocabulary by which we bring Jewish thinking into our lives is crucially important vocabulary. The reason why um, I spent better than a decade editing the three volumes of A Guide to Jewish Practice uh, is because I wanted people like us to have access to the riches of our tradition, but restated in a contemporary vein and accessible to people, and inviting people like you and me into the conversation about Jewish ethics that has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, it's that conversation that can strengthen us to resist a tide in our society that in many ways is pushing us in directions that are not very helpful. Whether we're talking about the way in which teenagers get attacked through the social media, or we're talking about presidential candidates, or we're talking about gossip shows, the bottom line is we are bombarded in a variety of ways with aspects of contemporary society that are really hurtful to us. And our best way of responding to that is, I think, recognizing that Judaism can be a counterculture that provides the input the mutual strengthening and the perspective that allows, to a, allows us to resist some of those negative aspects of the society in which we live without giving up any of the benefits. If I were prepared to give up the benefits, I uh, would be speaking to you in Hebrew or Yiddish. A counterculture needs to have its own life rhythms witness that we're here observing Shabbat together. It needs its own vocabulary, and it needs its own community. One of the reasons why I was really happy to get a chance to come and talk to you all at KI is um, this can be such a community, and in some ways it already is. But the commitment to learning together and establishing a shared vocabulary uh, 
um, I think is critical to, particularly critical, to the futures of liberal Jews. Because we are inheritors of an extraordinary thick and rich tradition that we only got tiny little bits of through religious school if we attended it as, a, as kids. Um, not because we necessarily ever resisted, but because we didn't have much opportunity. And if that was true when I was younger, then it is far more true for the young people growing up today. And we can seize hold of that richness and use it in ways of which we can be proud if we make the choice of doing so. So just as thinking in terms of hakarata tov and avoiding lashon hara can upgrade the quality of our relationships, so can broad other categories of Jewish ethics and Jewish practice enrich our lives. May we have many opportunities to grow, enrich, and deepen. Shabbat Shalom.